from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungmin from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 29th. Today, the impeachment trial enters the question phase. How Black Americans feel about Trump and what Brexit means for Brits living abroad. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. The chaplain will lead us in prayer. On Wednesday afternoon, the Senate began a two-day, 16-hour period of questioning in the impeachment trial. Let us pray. Senior political reporter Aaron Blake was covering it, and he watched as senator after senator posed questions to the president's legal team and the House Democratic managers. The one thing that's a little bit interesting about the process, though, is they don't ask it themselves. They have to submit the questions in writing, which are then read by Chief Justice John Roberts. And this is kind of a side note, but it's funny that this is actually one of the the occasions where we've heard most from Chief Justice John Roberts publicly, like ever. He's spending a lot of time today just reading out these questions from senators. Senator Lee asks uh, of counsel for the president. Senator Cruz, Mr. Chief, question is addressed to counsel for the president. The senator is recognized. Question from Senator Markey to the House managers. Yeah, and of course, we don't get cameras in the Supreme Court, so we can't hear him reading his opinions there or asking questions of the counsels that are arguing the cases. So, yes, him reading these questions is really the largest audio record that we really have of John Roberts since his confirmation hearings. So how would you describe the majority of the questions that we saw today? The senators ask of counsel for the president, is the standard for impeachment in the House a lower threshold to meet than the standard for conviction in the Senate? The questions are not terribly probing. So far, both sides seem more interested in teeing up their own side's lawyers and impeachment managers for essentially regurgitating talking points that we've already heard throughout the course of this trial. Question from Senator Markey to the House managers. On Monday, President Trump tweeted, the Democrat-controlled House never even asked John Bolton to testify. End quote. So that the record is accurate, did House impeachment investigators ask Mr. Bolton to testify? There are not many questions of the other side's lawyers or impeachment managers. There are not a lot of questions that seem geared towards actually unearthing some new line of argument or new facts. So there might be a little bit more of that moving forward. There is an incentive at the beginning to, I think, as Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said, to rebut the so many holes in the president's argument. They've been on for three days. And he suggested that as this progresses, there might be a little bit more kind of chance for cross-examination of the other side's lawyers or impeachment managers. But there were a few questions that we've seen so far that seem to come out of a genuine sense of, of wanting to understand. And they're questions that are interesting, not just because of the answer they elicited, but also because of what it says about the thinking of the people who were asking it. Right. So as we've been saying throughout this process, 
it really is about those Republican senators in the middle who are perhaps a little bit undecided or are entertaining the idea of new evidence and new witnesses. The Mitt Romney, of course, is, is among them, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. They actually asked the first question, and it was an interesting one, in which they asked the president's legal team, if President Trump had more than one motive for his alleged conduct, such as the pursuit of personal political advantage, rooting out corruption, and the promotion of national interests, how should the Senate consider more than one motive in its assessment of Article 1? And the president's legal team argued that as long as there is basically any public interest here, as long as there is an official reason for the president's actions, that it is not an impeachable situation— That's certainly an interesting argument. It's a very broad argument about the president's powers to do things like this. But I thought it also maybe spoke to an off-ramp that these senators might have. Maybe they don't like that the president was doing this. Maybe they think he was trying to help his own re-election campaign. But if there is a some kind of a purpose here that is official and that maybe is in line with administration policy, maybe they'll argue that it's not a situation where they can remove the president for this. And we saw this a little bit later in the questioning when I believe it was Alan Dershowitz basically made this argument that if the president believes that his reelection is in the public interest, that it becomes a policy motivation to do something that gets him reelected, even if that is also a personal motivation. It was a very bizarre, honestly, line of reasoning. But a complex middle case is, I want to be elected. I think I'm a great president. I think I'm the greatest president there ever was. And if I'm not elected, the national interest will suffer greatly. That cannot be an impeachable offense. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. This was the moment of the first several hours of this particular portion of the Senate trial. Patrick Philbin, the deputy White House counsel, is the one who had argued that If there is a dual motivation here, if it's both personal and official, that it's not impeachable. And then Alan Dershowitz took that quite a bit farther by arguing that even if there is no official reason for this, if this was solely about the president trying to get himself reelected, as long as he viewed himself getting reelected as being in the public interest, then it's not an impeachable offense. And it cannot be a corrupt motive. If you have a mixed motive that partially involves the national interest, partially involves electoral, and does not involve personal pecuniary interests. And Which basically that, seems like a blanket excuse for a president to be able to do anything if he thinks that it's going to get him reelected. It goes without saying that if this were to be a line of argument that was accepted by the courts or by the Congress, that would allow the president to do many, many things that may otherwise seem objectionable because they could just say it was for their reelection. I think the pushback on that from Republicans has been Dershowitz's argument only holds if the thing they were doing was not illegal. And in this case, there is obviously no accusation of a statutory crime, only an abuse of power. So I think that they would argue it's maybe not as far-reaching of a claim by Dershowitz as it might seem initially. 
I also thought it was interesting that at multiple points during the Q&A today, there was discussion about this hypothetical situation with Obama and, and Mitt Romney that, that, that people basically tried to compare what had happened with President Trump and Burisma and Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son with, well, what if Obama were to have done this when he was competing against Mitt Romney and if one of Romney's sons were involved in some kind of Ukrainian gas company. And it felt like both sides kind of took that hypothetical situation off into its own direction. Yeah, so this began when the Republicans asked a pretty loaded question, which is that, as a matter of law, does it matter if there was a quid pro quo? Is it true that quid pro quos are often used in foreign policy? And Alan Dershowitz approached this as you would expect him to by saying, yes, here are examples of quid pro quos. This is how business is done. Adam Schiff then came back. He was given a chance to respond by his own side senators who basically said, do you want to comment on that argument? And he made the point that it's not about quid pro quos. It's about corrupt quid pro quos. And then he did something which was really interesting was he used an analogy, a hypothetical that involved a guy we're talking about a lot right now, Mitt Romney. People may remember back when uh, President Obama during the 2012 election was leaning over to then-Russian President Dmitry Medvedev and basically said on a hot mic, I'll have more flexibility after the election to deal with these issues. This was, of course, a, a big thing for Republicans. They thought that Obama was not being honest about this, that he was you know, going to do something after the election that he didn't have the guts to do at that point. And Schiff offered this hypothetical in which President Obama on an open mic says to Medvedev, hey, Medvedev, I know you don't want me to send this military money to Ukraine because they're fighting and killing your people. I want you to do me a favor, though. I want you to do an investigation of Mitt Romney. And said, is there any situation in which Obama would not have been impeached for that? And the assumption is, no, he would have absolutely been impeached if he did that. It's Yes, that's the argument. So it's really interesting that Romney's being invoked in this way because obviously he is a swing vote. Maybe Schiff was trying to speak to him personally with that particular analogy, but Republicans didn't seem to want to let that one go quite so easily. Did we get any better sense from the questions or the answers today about whether John Bolton might be allowed to come in and testify or whether any other witnesses are, are going to be able to actually speak on the floor of the Senate? The most interesting question I saw on that front was from Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, who is certainly an establishment Republican, but maybe one of those guys who Democrats would think in an ideal world they could pick off for some of these votes on witnesses. And he basically asked the question of, Please address the implications of allowing the House to present an incomplete case to the Senate and request the Senate to seek testimony from additional witnesses. How long would this get dragged out if we started having new witnesses and new evidence? Maybe he was genuinely curious about that. Perhaps it was meant to be an argument against lengthening this process and maybe suggest that he wouldn't be on board with the idea of new witnesses and new evidence. Uh, that may be reading a little bit too much into it. I do think the other thing that's interesting here is the most probing questions we're getting in this entire process have been from Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. They seem genuinely interested in some of the arguments that are being made by each side. And that, to me, suggests that they are at least projecting that they are very much 
in play here, if not for removing the president from office, some of these, you know, more near-term questions about witnesses and evidence. Of course, Democrats don't need those three only. They need one more than that. And we don't know who that fourth person would be at this point. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. Aaron Blake is a political reporter for The Fix. For more updates from the Senate impeachment trial, check out our impeachment podcast feed. It's updated daily with the latest stories from Post Reports, along with some of our other politics podcasts. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. So what was President Trump's pitch to black voters during the 2016 election? Our government has totally failed our African-American friends, our Hispanic friends, and the people of our country, period. The Democrats During the 2016 election, Trump started saying during his campaign events that black voters should consider him because what do you have to lose? What the hell do you have to lose? Give me a chance. Then he would talk about horrible conditions in black communities. He says you've got crime. crime. You've got horrible education. Bad schools. You've got no housing. Falling apart housing. No homes. No ownership. The Democrats haven't delivered for you. Why don't you give me a look? Give me a chance. I'll straighten it out. I'll straighten it out. What do you have to lose? Of course, it didn't work because President Trump got, I believe, about 8% of the black vote. Vanessa Williams is a national reporter for The Post. I focus on race and gender. And in this election year, I'll be focusing on how those identities impact the presidential election. Since 2016, Vanessa has paid a lot of attention to the case that President Trump has tried to make to Black Americans. He's talked about the economy is great, uh, unemployment is low. Black unemployment is the best it's ever been in recorded history. You know, you guys should be happy and support me. But all of that still has not convinced many Black Americans. That's according to a poll that came out this month, conducted by The Washington Post and Ipsos. This is a really groundbreaking poll surveying more than a thousand black voters about their not only their preferences in the Democratic primary, but their attitudes about the direction of the country. It's really important because not a lot of major news organizations have done this type of deep dive with black voters. The poll showed just how pessimistic black Americans were about the country under Trump. 90% disapproved of the president's job performance. And nearly two-thirds said that it's a bad time to be a Black person in America. I can't say it was surprising, but it was interesting to see the hard data. Black voters overwhelmingly disapprove of the job that President Trump is doing, that they believe he is racist, and they also blame him for exacerbating, if you will, racial tensions in the country. Those were the things that, that, that stood out. And the poll also asked point blank if people thought that Donald Trump is racist. It did. And the vast majority of 8 and 10, over 8 and 10, said yes, he is. 
And why do you think that number is so much higher, so much more overwhelming for Black people than it is for other demographics? I think that he has always had very high negatives with Black voters, even back in 2016. But we did additional reporting for the poll by calling some of the respondents back, and those conversations were really uh, illuminating. Hello? Hello? Uh, My name is Keith Battle. My name's Ethel Smith. Francine Cartwright. Uh, My age is 64. Uh, Age 44, almost 45. (laughs) And I'm 72 years old. I'm from Lithonia, Georgia. And I currently reside in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Voters would say the way that he talked about other people of color. Especially the way he talked about immigrants, the things I've heard him say about immigrants. Latinos and Muslims. I'd had people say to me in interviews, he thinks about them like that, he probably thinks about us like that. The things that I've heard him say about other people that came from other countries, and most of those people made this country. We as Black people help to make this country. It takes everybody. It's a melting pot here, I know, but it takes a melting pot to make soup. And they just were disturbed by what they saw as as someone who encouraged bigotry uh, writ large. Unresolved racial issues in this country. He has used that to further divide the citizens of this country. Some of these individuals were just really disturbed by what they see as um, Trump giving license to people to sort of act out their worst attitudes about race. I hate to label people. I'm not going to say he's a racist, but he's definitely a white supremacist, a person who believes that, you know, that the ideas of white people are more important than others. So if you are supporting that person and that ideal, then that means that you think that I'm not necessarily, I'm a second class citizen or, or third or maybe even further down the line. Now people are a little bit more, you know, willing to be out with how they feel um, especially, you know, white people towards black people. I feel like they're, they're more out. You know? One of the people I talked to, Francine Cartwright, this 44-year-old mother of three, she's from New Jersey. She works at a university as a researcher. And she talked about now it's like the gloves are off and people feel like, you know, that they can say whatever they want. That troubled them. I, you know, I think it's always been there. And I just think that, you know, there's a certain group of people who feel like they have a representative in office who is aligned with their beliefs. So if that's the case, then I can, you know, be very open and very um, out about that. They said it was a bad time to be a Black person in America under Trump, Uh, yet uh, the majority felt optimistic about their own lives. So it's very interesting findings. What do you think that means, that a lot of Black people are, are optimistic about their own lives, but they're still saying that President Trump is making things worse for Black people. Yeah, that was a very fascinating uh, sort of yin and yang. When we talked to voters about what that meant, they said, look, sure, the economy is good. I have a job. Unemployment is low. My 401k is growing. I should also point out a caveat that they don't give uh, President Trump a lot of credit for that. They believe those things started happening before he became president. They started under President Obama when the unemployment rate for black people began falling for everybody and black people included began dropping. So, yes, they felt good about their own uh, personal circumstances. However, they felt like even though I'm doing well, I know that other people aren't doing well. And they were very concerned about the growing gap between the haves and the have-nots. And do we have numbers on how 
these responses for this poll and how people were feeling about the general state of what it's like to be a black American and how optimistic they they feel about their future and other people's futures. Do you have a, a sense of how that is different from what we would have seen during either the Obama administration or the George W. Bush administration? In this poll, we found that 65 percent of of Black people said it was a bad time to be Black in America. And that's starkly different from what we've seen in the past. In uh, 2011, the Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll, uh, did a survey focusing on Black women. And 73% of Black women uh, in that survey said it was a good time to be a Black woman in America. And in 2006, we did a poll of Black men And uh, we found that 60 percent of black men said it was a good time to be a black man in America. So that's 65 percent of black Americans are saying that it is a bad time to be black in America, whereas just less than a decade ago, you had somewhere between 60 and 75 percent of black people saying it was a good time to be black in America. That's right. And it speaks to, again, the finding in the poll that black people think that this president Uh, is racist and has brought out the worst instincts or impulses, if you will, in what they think, what they say, and what they do with regard to people of color. I I think it's a challenging time to be an African-American. At least for me, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, my tone, my voice, my attitude, you know, how am I being perceived? And um, because at the end of the day, I want to, to, I want to, you know, life, I want to be satisfied. I want to, I want quality of life and I want to, Um, you know, do the very best that I can. Why do you think a poll like this and the results that that we're seeing, why do you think it's important? Well, one reason I think it's important is because I believe that the news media, the Post and other major news organizations have focused a lot in the last four or five years on the concerns of, quote, white working class America and why they believe that Donald Trump is the best thing for the country. And I think it's really important and interesting to hear the thoughts of people who who don't share those those views, who are genuinely concerned, afraid, not just for themselves, but for the country. And it's also important because I think there's a realization that Black voters, African-American and Black voters, are going to be very important in helping to decide who the Democratic nominee is. They are one of the largest and most loyal voting blocs in the Democratic Party. I also think these numbers are interesting because— They represent this demographic of voter that I don't think that we talk about enough. And so I wonder what these poll results say about potential turnout among Black Americans in the election and whether this overwhelming feeling that President Trump is a racist and that the country is going in the wrong direction, if that will be enough to animate people to really get out in significant numbers. Well, I think the jury's still out on that. I think it's true that most people in this poll said they intend to vote. However, if the people who are committed to, uh, if you will, sort of voting him out, then that would require a lot more participation among people like that than happened in 2016. You know, part of the issue in 2016 where people didn't feel motivated, they didn't feel like the Democratic candidate uh, spoke to them or tried to get them to participate, and so they didn't. People need a reason to vote for something or someone. It just can't be about voting against someone. But again, it just, it's kind of early to tell. It really is. 
Vanessa, thank you so much. Thank you. Vanessa Williams is a reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. On Wednesday, as the European Parliament approved the Brexit withdrawal agreement, lawmakers stood up and started singing. Friday is Brexit Day, or Exit Day. It's the day that Britain officially leaves the European Union. Carla Adam is a London correspondent for The Post. She says that this agreement will transform Britain's relationship with the EU and people's ability to move freely from country to country. So if you're a Londoner and you want to move to Paris, you know, you can get a train ticket and in just over two hours, you can be in a new country, in a new city and start a new life. I mean, that is effectively what it's like here. Now, that freedom of a movement that is coming to an end in, in Britain at the end of the year, after that, it will become more difficult for British citizens to move to the continent and more difficult for Europeans to move to Britain. I think it's kind of worth saying that, you know, EU citizens, they don't feel like immigrants. They are EU citizens. And Britain is a member of the EU club, or has been until now. After Brexit, EU citizens will, in effect, be immigrants, and they will be immigrants who need to apply for something called settled status if they want to continue living in the UK. And if they don't apply for settled status or if they miss the deadline, they will effectively be living in the UK illegally. So my name is Anna Amato. I live in Bristol. I've lived there since I was 18 months old. She is Italian, but as you can hear, she is for all intents and purposes British. I'm, I'm proud to be the daughter of an Italian immigrant family. I'm proud of that. That's my heritage. The success story of the UK, a tolerant, inclusive society, was all about being bicultural, feeling special, not feeling different. She did think I should apply for British citizenship, so she, and she thought that would just be a formality. The official said, no, 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 first, the first step you need to do is apply for permanent residency, and then you can apply for British citizenship. So she did that, and... So, and I was refused permanent residency in my own country. That is, to me, so that, that it gives me an existential crisis in my life, because I've always felt this was my country. Can I get your name as well? Okay, my name is Rebecca McKeon. I also spoke to Rebecca. She's a British citizen living in Italy. The day after the referendum, I woke up and I just felt sick to the stomach. I really, it's, it's really hard to explain, but you have something that is part of you, your rights, that suddenly it feels like somebody's ripped them away or is threatening to rip them away. And it's, it's like a death of part of you. It's really, that sounds dramatic, but it's how it feels. As the whole thing carried on, people began to realise that, yeah, people like us, British citizens in the EU, are actually in limbo too, um, for many reasons that kind of mirror each other. So I just, I don't know, I got involved. I, I'm just, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm, I, I've been doing something every day since that day. So I, I think, you know, this one thread that seems to be running through many of the 
the stories you hear is that is that people feel they feel betrayed that they have people feel that they've they've lived their entire lives under a certain set of rules and these rules are now being ripped up and replaced by something new. Carla Adam is a London correspondent for the Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you are a fan of the show, don't forget to rate us and leave a review on your podcast app, like listener BK News, who described Post Reports as intelligent and varied, like a newspaper. Exactly. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.